Good evening. Hello, Walter. <laughs> Time to start our worship service. Our, our first song will be number 408, Low in the Grave He Lay. 408. <clears throat> Low in the grave At the end? Well, there is no announcement right now. I'm sorry. Apologize. <laughs> we'll move on to the next one. Number 220. He lives.
we have someone for prayer? Or do we? I forgot to ask that too. Okay, I'll, I'll sing. <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure. All right, after this song, you'll lead us in a prayer, please. <laughs> he lives in 220. I serve the risen Savior in the world Thank you. 
you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we are so thankful, so grateful for all that you give us, all that you do for us. Thankful for another beautiful day, uh, one where we can assemble to worship, where we can assemble to remember um, your son and our savior and his sacrifice for us. We're thankful, Father, for the, the church here at Rome, for what it means to us, allowing us to be a part of it. Help us, Father, to use um, all that we have uh, in your service always. Help us to be better each day than we were in the past. Help us to grow closer to you and let your light and your love shine to those around us. We're mindful, Father, of many who are struggling, many who are sick, many who are hurting, many who are um, suffering from anxiety or depression or um, other emotional issues in their life. Uh, many of us struggle with so many different things. We pray for your strength for your guidance, your comfort, your help, your encouragement. Just help us, Father, as your children, to do what we can to help and to benefit the lives of those we come in contact with. Continue to guide our service this evening. Guide our lives, Father, and help us to live them for you. I'm thankful for your Son, for what we have in him and through him. We pray in his name. Amen. Why don't we stand up while we sing 726? We saw thee not. <clears throat> yeah. We saw thee not, where man is not, to live for worth of sinning.
seated. Our invitation song will be number 739, What Will You Do With Jesus, 739. Good evening. We have been uh, talking through some scriptures that we believe have been misused and misapplied over the last several weeks. And so tonight we are in the book of Revelation. Um, we've talked a little bit uh, on the last couple of Wednesday nights through our devos about the book of Revelation, a couple of the chapters there, specifically 7 and 8. Um, but tonight we're in Revelation chapter 16. So... Um, one of the things that have ca has caused a lot of harm uh, to truth has been those books written by uh, Tim LaHaye uh, and some, I can't remember the other author's name, um, but they, they talk about uh, their view of premillennialism and the end of the world and the rapture and these things like this. And one of the things that they talk about is the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, so tonight we're going to talk about the Battle of Armageddon. And you find it mentioned one time in the book of Revelation. It's the only time it's mentioned in the entire scriptures. It's found in Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. So uh, if you've read through those books, they are, they're good fiction, right? Emphasis on, on the word fiction. <laughs> there's, no, there's no scriptural basis behind any of the things that they, that they talk about in those books. Tonight we're going to try to walk through some of the, the truth here. Uh, about this this battle that's coming up uh, or has already happened that's kind of the question isn't it they'll say that it's coming up but I think scripture leads us uh, to the obvious conclusion that it has already happened so grab your Bibles turn to Revelation chapter 16 let's just let's just look through this passage uh, tonight we'll start in verse 1 um, we are kind of jumping into the middle of a context here uh, so maybe some background work is, is necessary. Uh, if you've been here on Wednesday nights the last couple of times, you know that uh, we've been talking about Revelation being a, a metaphorical book. It's, it's written in apocalyptic literature, and that's going to be important for us because anyone who opens up this book, and certainly any Jew who opens up this book, automatically understands that this is not meant to be read literally. We'll talk more about that toward the end of our, our lesson tonight. Um, but th this is a book full of symbols, and you're intended to be able to decipher the symbols. And the more you know your Old Testament, the easier revelation is for you to decipher. The problem we struggle with is, well, we got a couple of problems when we come to Revelation, but one of the problems that we struggle with when we come to Revelation is we don't know our Old Testament like we should. Um, and this is written to people steeped in their Old Testament. Um, and so when they would have mentioned some of these symbols... Um, the folks reading the, this letter would have automatically gotten what he was talking about. We don't know our Old Testament like, like we should. We're not as, as, as steeped in it as they were. And so we struggle a little bit there. Now on the other side of this, there are some symbols that we, we just we can't grab a hold of. We can't, I don't know that we can know what all the things that he's talking about in the book of Revelation. Certainly I don't. Um, but I think we can get the, the whole picture. I think if we take, take a step or two back and look at the whole picture of what he's trying to say in Revelation, or even in maybe specific chapters, like in chapter 16, I think we can understand what his main goal is. There may be some things that we, we can't grab a hold of uh, all the way. We can't delineate specific symbols, and this means this, and this means that. But if we look at it as a whole, I think we can grab a hold of the, the meaning as a whole. So, 
We're jumping in. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and he poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So these, these are the ones that, that bear the, the seal of God, the ones that have been sealed in Revelation 7. Those, those folks are safe. From, from these plagues. And as you go through the next couple of verses, it's going to be like the greatest hits of God's wrath throughout history. You, you familiar with those, the, the greatest hits tours of some of the bands that come back and you go to the show and they'll play all their greatest tunes and stuff? This, this is that, but in awful fashion. Uh, it's the wrath that God has poured out on his enemies throughout time. He's bringing those back and he's emptying all of that wrath on, on these people. Uh, I think, I think you, I think it's obvious that that those people are Rome, um, but we'll we'll talk more about that in just a second. So, verse three, uh, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that di- and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just. Just are you, O Holy One, and who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. This is a terrible scene, this, this wrath that he's pouring out. You're meant to, to cringe, uh, I suppose, a little bit because he's writing to people who are being persecuted by, by Rome, by these people that God's currently judging. The first century Christians are being raked across the coals, sometimes literally uh, raked across the coals, uh, crucified and, and persecuted and martyred in horrendous fashion. Uh, it was designed to be painful. It was designed to be humiliating. It was designed to be dreaded. And that's what Rome is doing to these Christians. But here in Revelation 16, God's saying they don't get away with it. They don't, they don't get away with hurting my people. In fact, judgment and wrath is going to be poured out on them in such horrific fashion. Um, maybe even those that they persecuted might draw back a little bit and wince as, as they hear uh, what's going to happen to these people. So verse, verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. That last little line there, you probably want to want to underline that. They did not repent and give him glory. That's something you're going to see come up a couple more times throughout this chapter. And, and you're beginning at this point to see something where, where John's he's trying to make a point. The Spirit's trying to make a point here. Uh, they did not repent and give him glory. The things that, that, that was happening to them, this, these, these judgments, this wrath that was coming, these things ought to have woken the people up, right? You, you think like a Pharaoh in the Egyptian plagues. Those were designed to, to wake, wake him up, to, to force his hand, to make him release Israel. But really, they were designed, at least in some respects, to soften his heart. But they had the opposite reaction, didn't they? They, they ended up hardening Pharaoh's heart because he didn't want to listen. He did not want to repent. He did not want to do what God said. He wanted to do what Pharaoh wanted to do. 
And you find these people in exactly the same situation. They just want to do what they want to do. Uh, they've been doing this for long enough now that they, they're set and they're fine. These are the people that um, they, they just refuse to listen. They will not repent. Um, they refuse to listen no matter what happens to them. Even verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And just time and time again throughout this chapter, you'll see uh, at least the next couple of verses where he'll, he'll throw out wrath on these people in the hopes that, like Peter says, right, that people will come to repentance. But they don't. Um, they refuse to repent. They refuse to give Him the glory. And so wrath just keeps on coming. Um, and so, look in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. You might want to draw attention to that verse somewhere. If you write in your text, uh, you might want to star that one. So, here's these three creatures... And they are vomiting out frogs. Three frogs, to be specific. And these are three special frogs. These are significant frogs. Uh, verse 14 tells us they are like they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So these frogs are the generals of Satan and his, his cohorts of Rome. Um, and so, out of all the possible generals that, they, that this force that Satan could muster, he's going to get the best, right? He's, he's going to look for the most well-trained, the most disciplined, the ones with the most wins. And the, he's going to bring out his best. And the best, these, these three generals that he's going to bring out, they ought to, their job is to marshal all of his forces into one central area so that this battle can be commenced. And so the best that Satan can offer are frogs. You're supposed to see this as ridiculous. You're supposed to see this as, as ludicrous, I think. I think that's what the Holy Spirit wants you to see here. When, when these, these three fierce beasts vomit out the generals, you're supposed to think, Oh, this is going to be terrifying. What's coming up? It's a, it's a frog. That's, that's a bit odd. I don't know how many of you um, are scared of snakes or things like the bears. Certainly these are fierce animals, but a frog? I've never been afraid of a frog. I've been afraid of a lot of animals. I've never been afraid of a frog, not once. Uh, and so this, this scene that the Holy Spirit's wanting us to see here, he writes this for this reason. It's not intimidating. Frogs are not fierce. They're not, they're not great generals. They're not great thinkers. How many times have you seen a frog hopping across the road and thought, that guy's got it all together. He knows what's going on, right? These things are not known for their intelligence. They're not known for uh, their ferocity. They're not known for, these, for being warriors. In fact, they, usually the exact opposite is true of these things, right? So John's trying to get you to see here, the best Satan has to offer is frogs. That's, that's the genius behind his battle plan. That's the ferocity behind his battle plan. The best he can get together is, is three frogs. And so these three frogs marshal his forces. And it gets, it gets even better. Check, check out what happens next. 
In verse 15, uh, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In verse 16, he says, And they assemble these three frogs, the best that Satan can offer. Remember, this, this battle is coming up, right? Um, in the first century, it's coming up. In, in, our, in our day, we're looking back on the first century, seeing this battle has already happened. Um, this, this is not something that's coming up. Um, Jesus is not going to reign on David's throne for a literal thousand-year period. Those things will not happen. Um, and even if they were to happen, the Old Testament tells us that any son of Jeconiah, which Jesus would be, would not be fruitful sitting on the throne of David. Uh, so none of that's true. God, God will, is, is, Jesus is not going to rule on David's literal throne for a thousand years. Jerusalem has no significance as a uh, as a nation, God doesn't, he's not going to do anything with Jerusalem. There's no, there's no special significance there anymore. Um, so we're looking back on this event that's already happened, and we're seeing it play out for us here in Revelation. But the first century people, they're, they're looking forward to this event. And as people that are being hurt, cruelly despised by Rome, uh, they're looking forward to judgment. And you see this in Revelation chapter 6 with these souls that are seen under the altar and they're crying out, how long, O Lord, how long are you going to refrain from judgment? And in Revelation 16 is when he answers, it won't be long. And when it comes, it'll be so fierce and ferocious. There won't be anywhere you can run to escape this. And it will be complete. No one will be left out. Um, and, and he puts it in these, these really um, unique and, and odd terms uh, here in Revelation 16, when he, when he says these, these three frogs are the generals uh, that Satan, <coughs> excuse me, are the, are the three generals that Satan has mustered to lead his army into death, basically. What's so interesting is verse 16. This is really our text for tonight. Um, so check out verse 16, Revelation 16, 16. And they assembled them, this, these three frogs assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Maybe Harmageddon. Um, I'm, I don't know enough to be able to, to walk you through all the distinctions there. But I'm told that uh, this is a, a broken down form of Megiddo, which is a biblical place. If you know your Old Testament well, lots of interesting things happen in the valley of Megiddo. Um, Deborah and Barak fight Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, uh, at, 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 uh, the, at Megiddo, in this valley of Megiddo. Um, and, of course, they rout uh, his army. That's where Jael comes into play. and um, she, she kills Sisera. And, and, but that, that victory is won here in the valley uh, of Megiddo. Gideon, another one of the judges, is going to win his battle right here against innumerable forces. Um, he has 300 men, and no one could foresee what's about to happen, but God is with him, just like he was with Deborah and Barak. Um, God is with Gideon, so he's going to be able to rout the innumerable. They didn't even stop to count them. There were just so many of them, uh, these Midianites. He's going to rout uh, that, that the forces there. There's also lots of negative stories that happen here in the valley of Megiddo. Um, 
Saul is going to be killed here by the Philistines. Um, King Ahaziah dies right here in this valley, uh, thanks to Jehu's arrows. Josiah is mortally wounded here. And so you begin to see God's, God's trying to tell you something with uh, this, this reference to Megiddo. But what is it? Well, God was with Deborah and Barak and Gideon, right? He, he tells us that. He makes that pretty clear in the book of Judges. God was behind all of these battles. He was with the people. They had his um, nod to go into these battles. This was at his behest. But Saul, do you remember when Saul dies? Is he in favor with God or out of favor? He's out of favor, isn't he? Um, he he's fallen away from God. He's, he's not, you might say he's refused to repent and didn't give God the glory. Hmm. King Ahaziah, is he in favor when he dies in the Valley of Megiddo? Or is he out of favor? Well, Ahaziah was a bad, evil king, and he's really never in favor with God. God is always against this guy because of his wickedness. And so he's out of favor with God. And so you might be able to say that he, too, didn't repent or give God the glory. Now, King Josiah is a different story. For the most part, here's a good, righteous man. He does good things. Reforms are, are held up under his reign. Um, and legitimately, a good king, you should go back to Second Chronicles Late in, late in 2 Chronicles, somewhere around 26 or so, and read about Josiah's, Josiah's life. So why is he killed here in the Valley of Megiddo? Why are, we, why are we drawing so much attention to that? Well, Josiah wasn't supposed to go to this battle. In fact, God told him not to go to this battle. Pharaoh Necho, the, the, the Egyptian pharaoh, does not want a battle with Josiah. In fact, Necho says, I don't have any beef with you. You just stay over there and let me, let me fight my battle against this guy over here. Josiah wouldn't have it. And so he goes against Necho. And God says, do not do this. This is not right. Don't do this. And Josiah does what he wants to do. You might say that Josiah refused to repent and didn't give God the glory. <coughs> he wanted to do what he wanted to do. So in the valley of Megiddo, people who refuse to repent and don't give God the glory die. They're obliterated every single one of them without uh, hesitation and without, um, without number. They're, they're all, it's, it's a complete annihilation. But if you're in the Valley of Megiddo and you do what God wants you to do and you're fighting a battle in the Valley of Megiddo, you win against innumerable odds. It does not matter the numbers that are against you. If God is with you, who can be against you? And so if you're in the Valley of Megiddo and you're doing what God wants you to do, you're going to win. If you're in the Valley of Megiddo and you refuse to repent and you refuse to give God the glory, you're going to be annihilated. That's why he pictures, <clears throat> that's why John pictures, the Holy Spirit pictures, this battle is happening in the Valley of Megiddo. He's trying to get them to see these people refused to repent and they didn't give God the glory. Just like Saul, just like Ahaziah, just like even good King Josiah, and they were all annihilated. God's going to deal the exact same way with these frogs and their minions. As if there needed to be a further sign that the frogs were not going to be victorious in this particular battle. <laughs> he sets the scene in Megiddo. Now, keep going. It gets even more interesting. Check out verse 17. 
Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud noise, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It's done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the city of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Okay, now, that's, that's kind of the end of the battle. Babylon has fallen. Rome is Babylon. When you see Babylon in, in, in Revelation, read Rome. He's, he's, he's talking in symbols, right? Uh, Babylon, the Old Testament enemy of Israel. Rome is the New Testament enemy. These guys would have understood what was going on. So, skip forward a little bit. We get this same scene in Revelation chapter 19. Look in, uh, look in Revelation 19. Skip forward a couple chapters. Okay, look in verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. You're, gonna, you're about to get a, a terrifying description of Jesus in verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, linen white and pure, were following him on their white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there, there's your picture of Jesus. And behind him, you need to stop and, and think through this image of Jesus maybe really quick. But his eyes look like fire. And he's got a crown on his head indicating Royalty. This, this could be no one else other than Jesus. And his clothes, they're dipped in blood. He's just drenched in blood. He's riding on a white horse, and behind him is a whole army of people that are also wearing white. But they're not there to fight, because this isn't a battle. The Battle of Megiddo is a non-battle. It's the most anticlimactic battle on the planet, because the forces of evil, Satan's forces, the best that Rome can marshal, just are completely obliterated. Check out what happens in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. These are vultures. That's what that's the birds he's calling to. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So the battle has not even happened yet. Jesus and his army have, have entered the plain. And already the angel coming from God, coming from the sun, is saying, hey, vultures, you need to get ready because it's, it's about to be bad. This, this whole army over here that they, they you haven't even seen yet, they're about to be dead. This is the frogs in their army, right? This is the best that Satan can muster, Rome. He's essentially talking about Rome. Um, the best that they can offer, God's about to judge them. Don't forget, I feel like we've, we've talked about this a lot, but don't forget, these are persecuted Christians. They want to know 
that God's going to judge, that he's going to um, have wrath for the people that have hurt them, uh, the ones that, have, that are killing their friends uh, and their family members, the ones that are trying to hurt the church. They want to know that God is bringing judgment on them, and Revelation is all about that in fantastic form and so many symbols. Uh, that's, what, that's really what Revelation is about, that God will judge these people that if you stay with God, you win to the overcomers. He says these things, the ones that overcome this, this stuff. And the battle is so sure that he can look at the vultures and say, just come on, it's, it's done. But you need to read it just to see it. Uh, verse 19, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So finally, now we're introduced again to the frogs and their army, the best that, that Satan could, could, uh, could marshal. So they're finally here. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which the, he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne, who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's the end. That, that was the battle of Armageddon. You've seen it. It's in the past, right? Um, this is not a future event that's coming. This, this is something that's already happened. Um, but if this were a battle, this would be the most anticlimactic battle you've ever seen. These two forces start marching toward each other, and Jesus just grabs the false prophet and the dragon. He throws them in the lake of fire. All their uh, comrades who refuse to repent and give God the glory, they're all dead, and the vultures are down there feasting on their flesh before you can even blink an eye. It's over. And God's army didn't have to do anything. Jesus did all this, and it, it happens via the, the sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the word of God. This is not a literal battle. Don't read literal battle into, into this. This is a metaphorical battle. This is something that um, would bring comfort to the Jewish people who are being persecuted. It's not something that is thousands of years still in the future. Um, so here's some stuff that we need to talk about, I guess. Uh, the rules for interpretation. We've talked about a little bit throughout this series some rules, some helpful hints, some, um, some tips and tricks, I guess, uh, for interpreting the text well. Usually we say context, 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 right? With Revelation, we got to say, what kind of literature are you reading? There's lots of this kind of literature in the Old Testament. Daniel, um, uh, Jeremiah, sections uh, of several of the books of the Old Testament, Ezekiel, will be in apocalyptic literature. Um, you got to be aware of that kind of literature. It'd be like reading a poem and thinking, oh, he's literally, he's literally talking about that. Like in Song of Solomon, when, <laughs> you didn't think I was going to go here, did you? From Revelation to Song of Solomon. Uh, but what, when he says in Song of Solomon, you know, your teeth are like um, uh, shorn goat's hair. Her teeth are not literally goat's hair, right? Like they're not furry. They're not, they're not literally, he's speaking metaphorically here. He's trying to prove a point. They're like this. It's a metaphor, a simile. Uh, we're doing that kind of thing in Revelation. We just have to be aware of that as we read through this text. Um, we, have to, we have to be aware that this is not um, literal. Most of the time, for every other bit of Scripture, you're supposed to read it literally until you're given reason to be reading it figuratively. It's like when Paul says, um, flee from sexual immorality. 
He literally wants you to do that. <laughs> like, he literally wants you to run away from it. Um, so we read most of the rest of Scripture as literal until we're given reason to read it as figurative. When we come to apocalyptic literature, we're supposed to read it as figurative until we're given reason to read it literally, right? And so when frogs are vomited out of um, enemies' mouths, we're supposed to take a step back and think for a second, well, what, what symbol am I supposed to be understanding about frogs here? Well, frogs aren't very fierce enemies. You step on one and they're gone. And now there's three of them, but they're going to a plane where everything dies that opposes God. And so that's the symbol that he's trying to get you to see here. Um, the next thing you need to really need to think about when you're reading through Scripture is, what did this mean to the original hearers? What did they understand? Because it's got to mean something to them before it can mean anything to us, right? It's got to mean something to them before it can mean anything to us. And so if you, if you take that principle and apply it to the book of Revelation, um, 2,000 years from, if you're living in the first century, at least 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a battle in which uh, God defeats the forces of darkness. Um, is that really comforting to you? Nah, not all that much. That doesn't really hit me home where, where I need it to because I might be dragged out of my home and watch my family die in front of me because Rome hates Christians. I need something now. I need something tangible that I can latch onto right now. Um, and judgment coming for Rome very, very soon and very, very completely, that does it. And so it has to mean something to them before it can mean anything to us. So if we follow those, those rules of interpretation, they'll help us figure out what the text is really talking about, not just for Revelation, but for, for any book of the Bible to help us deal with the text rightly. We want to divide the Word of God well, um, rightly. And so that's, that's, um, that's what we're trying to do throughout this series, is trying to teach through some of these things that will, um, will help us understand what He wants us to know and how He wants us to live. This is one of those uh, passages that has been uh, incredibly abused, very, very misused, um, we just kind of fight an uphill battle uh, because Revelation is difficult to understand. But the general theme, it's not all that hard. Jesus wins. That's the general theme. If you want to sum Revelation up into two words, Jesus wins. It looks like Rome is winning. It looks like they're the ones who are in charge. They get to do whatever they want to without repercussion. But God says in Revelation, that's just not the case. You look down the line just a bit, you're going to see He's bringing wrath. And right now he's waiting. I suppose they could think like this. Uh, right now, if you're in the first century, he's waiting, hoping that one more will come to repentance. But most of them are not. Because they don't want to repent. They don't want to give God the glory. And so wrath is coming for them. Judgment is coming for them. And it did. And it will. Right? This is not something that's just true for them. Judgment waits for all of us. There's coming a day where we will all stand before the throne of God and have to give an account for who we have been and what we have done, who we were, whose we were. If you're inside of Christ, all that is washed away and your slate is brand new. And when he looks at you, he pulls open your, your file, like cosmic day of judgment, 
He's going to look at that and say, oh, Jesus, you're mine. You come on in. You've got the seal. If we're using Revelation's word, you've got the seal. You're, you're welcome here. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you're inside of Christ, to have your sins washed away. But if you're not, there's only fierce judgment uh, left for us because he cannot be a part of sin. That has to be dealt with. He dealt with that in Jesus. And so you don't have to incur the wrath. But it will be yours if you don't obey. If you're not willing to repent, you're not willing to give God the glory. Unfortunately, that wrath will be ours. And so the good news is you don't have to wait. You can have your sins washed away through the power of baptism. And having put him on, you become a brand new creation. Maybe you've already made that decision this evening and you're struggling. We want to pray with you and for you that you can be who God would have you to be. If you have any need tonight, why don't you come as we stand and sing. What will you do with Jesus? The question Good evening, Kirk family. A couple announcements before we are dismissed. As a reminder, next Sunday, there will be a deacons meeting at 5 o'clock. So all deacons, please put that in your schedule. Um, also, uh, next Tuesday's Young at Heart. 
We will be heading to Bombshells and Burgers and Barbecue at 10.30. Um, so that should be a lot of fun. That's uh, next Tuesday. And also next Tuesday will be the Addiction Seminar at 6.30. Um, April 22nd, uh, there will be a short meeting, about a 10-minute meeting, um, about the hometown love at the fairgrounds uh, at 7 a.m. No, I'm sorry. Getting two, two things mixed up here. All right, April 22nd, Hometown Love uh, at the Fairgrounds. We'll be meeting at 7 o'clock for that. Um, if you want to get involved with that, please see Chris. And there's a short mission trip, um, family mission trip meeting on April 23rd um, after services on Sunday. Um, also, April 24th through the 26th, there's a Flatwoods Gospel meeting. And if you can help out with mowing, uh, please sign up on the foyer board. Uh, we'd, we'd love your help on uh, cutting grass during summertime. Also, remember to continue to keep Jimmy Wilgus in your prayers, Terry Leap, uh, Jim Haney, and Amber Spitzer in your prayers as they continue with their cancer treatments and keep their families and the doctors that are taking care of them in your prayers. Uh, Alice Boso will have a heart cath tomorrow. Uh, at, uh, she has to be at the doctor's office at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so keep her in your prayers as she's having that done. And Judy Gerald's now recovering at home uh, with her recent heart cath. So keep her in your prayers as well and maybe send her a card of encouragement. That's all the announcements I have. Um, if you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been, been prepared in a conference room. You may leave and do that now. We will sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Our final song will be number 170, God Be With You. We'll sing just the first verse only of this song. <coughs> God be with you till we Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the opportunity, the privilege, the blessing that we've had to come here this evening to listen to a portion of your word to help us sort out those things that we encounter as we talk with people from time to time about your word and about what it means to us and for us. We pray, Father, that we will always study as much as we can so that we can be prepared to defend your word and give others a response for that hope that lies within us, the hope that we have of eternal salvation one day. As we depart, Father, we pray that each of us will do the best that we can this week to live for you, 
to teach others when the opportunity uh, presents itself and to do our very best to flee sin. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.